Let's stand together, and uh, if you have your Bible, let's turn to uh, let's turn to the beginning. It's always good to begin a book at the beginning. So let's start at Genesis 1-1. And we'll read through Revelation 22 this morning. <laughs> we'll be bringing in lunch. Uh, Chick-fil-A is closed, but you've got your choice of roast beef or tuna. Sorry. All right. Our culture used to believe this. Not many do anymore. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's go to John chapter 1. When I was a kid growing up in church, I would get confused by all the Johns. You got the Gospel of John, then there was 1 John, and 2 John, and 3 John. We're in the Gospel of John. It too goes back to the beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Speaking of Jesus, as we'll see in a minute. Now watch this. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Jesus is not only in John 1 1, Jesus is in Genesis 1. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In him was life. What happened in Genesis? Creation. What was created? Life. He is the life. In him was life, and the life was in the light of man. The life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. Here we go again. Another John. This is John the Baptist. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light, Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Watch this. He was in the world, but the world was made... He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Once again, the world was made through him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. More about Jesus in 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John, John the Baptist, testified about him and cried out, saying, this, is, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. John the Baptist was born before the Lord Jesus Christ was born in the major. 
But he clearly states he existed before me. Why? Because he's God and he's always existed. Jesus is the word of God. Now let's go to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 is about the greatness of God. We'll just read a couple of verses before we pray. If you'll note, verse 7, the grass withers and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. We are born, we live like grass, and then we die. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you for truth. We thank you that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. We thank you that we can trust your word because you are always truthful. You can do all things, but you cannot lie. The scriptures do not tell us that you don't lie. It says you cannot lie. It's because of your character. It's because of your attributes. It's because of your holiness and because of your purity. We live in a culture that says there is no truth. Truth does not exist. There is no absolute truth, they tell us, and they say it absolutely. But you are the truth. And the sum of thy word is truth, Psalm 119 tells us. We thank you for your truth. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Do that in the hearts of your people this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're living in days of um, incredible technological breakthroughs and discoveries, scientific discoveries. It seems like a day doesn't go by that we don't hear of something that just astonishes us. I, I came across an article this week, and perhaps you saw this as well. <clears throat> the headline says, experts now believe that the Apple iPhone evolved naturally over billions of years. <laughs> the origins of the complex device have been the subject of scientific debate for many years, but Thursday's announcement puts to bed any doubt that the early ancestors of the iPhone spontaneously generated in a swamp some 4.6 billion years ago. This is incredible. It goes on to say, and this is uh, Dr. Rashid Shami of Harvard, the current theory is that a small single-cell pager device was formed from electronic parts floating in the ocean. The pager then figured out how to reproduce, and natural selection took care of the rest. Scientists also confirmed that anyone who believes that some mystical being named Steve Jobs may have had a hand in creating the iPhone. Well, if you believe that, you're delusional. While the iPhone may have, been, may have had the appearance, the appearance of design, and yes, an Apple logo on the back, we assure you these are just happy accidents and not the result of intelligent designers creating the device, Shami said. The obvious answer to the origin of the highly complex smartphone is that it created itself, ex nihilo, just out of nothing. Well, I'm buying that. But you're not. That's ludicrous. And it comes from a site that I check often called the Babylon Bee. The Babylon Bee is a Christian satire site. They're hilarious. They're insightful. They make fun of what should be made fun of. And they do it very well. It would be ludicrous to believe that the Apple iPhone evolved naturally over billions of years. Almost as ludicrous as believing that this world evolved over billions of years just by itself, just spontaneously. But you see, that's what we're told. Constantly, consistently, from kindergarten on. Our subject today is the greatness of God. And so I'm going to let you in on a little background. When you preach in Chuck's place, they always ask you on Monday for an outline. Because Chuck has outlines 17 years ahead <laughs> of where he's going. I don't know how he does that, but he does it. And I never give an outline. But this week I said, well, I'm going to do Isaiah 40 on the greatness of God, so I'll go ahead and just give him a title and Isaiah 40. And I kept thinking after I, I thought, no, I'll call him in the morning and tell him, hold it. Um, I haven't changed my topic, haven't changed the passage. Uh, 
But this is going to be a two-part message. We will, we will get to Isaiah 40, but barely. <laughs> we'll finish it off next week because we've got to kind of get a running head start. We've got we to gotta get a running start to this whole topic and concept of the greatness of God because of the culture in which we live. I want to begin with two different men who were influenced by two different books. I'm the first guy, and back in 1973, when I was in my first year of seminary, J.I. Packer released a book called Knowing God. Now, my copy is literally falling apart. I have six others like this on my shelf that are falling apart. I read this book, I don't know, 30 times, 50 times, maybe more. It, it, uh, the Bible is obviously the most influential book in my life and in many of your lives. The great thing about this book is that it is a study of God and who he is and who he says he is. And the great thing about this book is that it deepens you and it stretches you and it by doing so it brings it it brings peace into your heart Isaiah 26 3 says he is the old King James I think he whose mind is stayed on thee thou will keep in perfect peace because he trust in thee he whose mind is stayed is fixed is meditating is thinking he whose mind is stayed on thee thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee before you trust somebody you got to know who they are before you trust somebody you got to know if they're trustworthy he begins his book he has a chapter called the study of god i read this in 1973 for the first time he begins with the study of God, and he starts off with a quote. On January 7th, 19, 1855, it's important, 1855, the minister of New Park Street Ch Chapel in England opened his sermon with these words. It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of God is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name and the nature and the person and the work and the doing and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. A lot of people wish they had have known their fathers. They live with their fathers, perhaps he was distant. I wish I had known my dad. I wish I had known him. See, the same thing in the Christian life. You want to know your father. And the more you get to know him, the more you trust him. And the more, you tr the more you know him, the more peace. Because he can, be trust he can be trusted. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of God. It's a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. 
other subjects we can compass and grapple with and we feel a kind of self-content. But when we come to this master science, finding that our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height, it humbles us. And while the subject humbles us, it also expands it. It expands our minds. He who often thinks of God will have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around this narrow globe. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the science of Christ and him crucified and the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man as a devout, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. And while humbling and expanding, this subject is eminently consolatory. It, it, it ministers to your heart. There is, in contemplating Christ, a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. So would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go and plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea, be lost in his immensity, and you shall come forth as, a, as from a couch of rest, refreshed, invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak peace to the winds of trial, as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. It is to that subject that I invite you this morning. Those are the words of C.H. Spurgeon. He was 20 years old. He knew the Lord. And it came out in his preaching. And that's why thousands upon thousands upon thousands came to hear him. Knowing God influenced me to a great degree. It, it told me about the character of God. It told me about the different aspects of God. Grown up in church, in a Bible-teaching church, um, and it did all those things. It stretched me, it humbled me, it, it, it put me in awe of God. Now, there's another man I mentioned. He was influenced by another book. This man is not a Christian. This man is a professor at Yale, and... This is an article that is not satire, it's real. Perhaps you've heard about this in the past couple of weeks. The headline is, Renowned Yale Professor Leaves Darwinism, says intelligent design is an absolutely serious theory. Renowned writer and Yale University professor David Galerner has turned away from Charles Darwin's theory of evolution arguing that it has too many holes and has aged out as a probable scientific theory. This is startling. I, I was, uh, at 4 a.m. this morning, I was watching a video of this guy, along with two other professors, and they are talking about the death of Darwinism. And these guys are not Christians. They're in the academic world, and they have stepped out where many would not step out, and they are saying things that are, quite frankly, sacrilegious in that world. But they're saying it. Um, 
what has happened is that Galanter recently, in recent years, read a book that utterly changed his thinking. He wrote a um, 28-page review of the book in their Claremont book review. This is it. It's called Giving Up Darwin. Um, I'll read just a section. He says, there's no reason to doubt. Oh, this is called Demolishing a Worldview, this subheading. There's, and why am I doing this? I'm doing this because we are living in an age where we are proud of our higher education. But in reality, much of our higher education is nothing more than higher indoctrination, is what it is. There is a philosophy. There is a, um, there is a strategy. There is, a, um, there is an effort. There is a device. Quite frankly, <clears throat> to deny God and to rebel against him and to inculcate children with things that are not true. And it's everywhere, it permeates our culture. So when a guy who is of the highest rank in the academic world comes out and says what he has said, it's worth noticing. Again, demolishing a worldview, he writes this, there's no reason to doubt that Darwin successfully explained the small adjustments by which an organism adapts to local circumstances, changed changes to fur density, or wing style, or beak shape. Yet there are many reasons to doubt, this is important, whether he can answer the hard questions and explain the big picture. Not the fine-tuning of existing species, but the emergence of new ones. The origin of species is exactly what Darwin cannot explain. Stephen Myers, and here's the book that has influenced him, Stephen Myers, thoughtful and meticulous book, Darwin's Doubt, convinced me that Darwin has failed. He cannot answer the big question. Two other books are also essential, The Deniable Darwin by David Berlinski and Debating Darwin's Doubt. Now Berlinski and Stephen Meyer were on this video interview I saw with Gelertner today. Fascinating, 45 minutes. These are three top scientists in the world, among the top. And they're absolutely, for very logical and mathematical reasons which I could not follow, are saying this makes no sense. These three books form a fateful battle group that most people would rather ignore. Bringing to bear the work of many dozen scientists over many decades, Meyer, who after a stint as a geophysicist in Dallas, earned a PhD in history and philosophy from Cambridge, and now directs the Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture, watch this, disassembles the theory of evolution piece by piece. Darwin's Doubt is one of the most important books in a generation. Few open-minded people will finish it with their faith in Darwin intact. And then, out of this other article, he says, pro-Darwin academics will try to destroy you if you attack their sacred theory. I'm attacking their religion. It's a big issue for them. Yes, it is.
you have uh, two different views. You have theism, God exists. You have atheism, <clears throat> God doesn't exist. I was hoping I'd find this other book. Here it is. John Lennox is a professor, a professor, a professor emeritus at Oxford University. Three PhDs. He, he is an academic of the highest caliber. He's written a book called Can Science Explain Everything? Because we live in a culture that thinks science can explain everything. There are three idols, three major idols in our culture. Self. Self is the new God. If I feel it, it must be true. It's all about self. Secondly, sexual anarchy. <clears throat> no prohibitions on any kind of sexual behavior whatsoever. Yet God says the only sexual relationship he blesses, the only one, is between a man and woman in marriage, period. Anything else is wrong, according to the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That doesn't, that, that, that's not real popular in our culture. So you have self, you have sexual anarchy, and the third idol is science. So Linux has written this tremendous book. May I give you a couple of quotes? What are you going to say, no? <laughs> um, he begins by saying, make a search on the subject of science and religion and it will take only a few clicks to convince you that you have stepped into a war zone. Excuse me, I'm looking for some water here. Could I get some from you guys, please? Thanks. He goes on and says, this is what you, we might call for convenience things, Steve, the science side of things. They view themselves as the voice of reason. They believe they are working to roll back the tide of ignorance and superstition that has enslaved mankind since we crawled out of the prime evil slime. If I can summarize their position, it is this. Science is an unstoppable force for human development that will deliver answers to many of our questions about the universe, and solve many, if not all, of our human problems. Disease, energy, pollution, poverty. At some stage in the future, science will be able to explain everything and answer all our needs. That's just flat not true. But see, that's actually, to be more precise, that's called scientism. Scientism is the new God. Science is the new God. They may be assuming, Linux writes, they may also be assuming that at some stage in the future, science will provide the answers to at least some of our big questions in life. Where do we come from? What are we here for? What is the meaning of our existence? At the other extreme, there is what we might call for convenience, the God side. They hold that a divine intelligence is behind everything there is and everything we are. They are looking for and even claim to have found the answers to the same big questions that scientists ask, but in a very different place. 
They look to the complexity and wonder of the universe and our astonishingly rich and diverse blue planet, and they find it to be self-evident that there is a wonderful mind behind our beautiful and amazing world. They seem surprised that there could be other people who do not see things this way. Sometimes the result is fighting and name-calling and intemperate encounters that generate more heat than light between the two groups. It is therefore not surprising, Lennox goes on to say, that many people conclude that God and science do not mix. Like when you drop metallic sodium or potassium onto water, there is a lot of fizzing and fire and heat ending with a loud bang. He goes on and tells the purpose of his writing the book. I want to suggest that the popular idea that science and God do not mix is simply not true, but that it is relatively easy, and it is relatively easy to establish that. In this short book, I want to examine many of the misconceptions people have, not just about faith and belief in God, but all about, about science itself. He goes on and says, hydrogen and oxygen, like potassium and water, also form an explosive mix mixture, but the end result could not be more different. It's refreshing, life-giving water. Uh, as he goes on in the book, he talks about his first year at Cambridge, and he had a professor who was a Nobel Prize winner, and at Cambridge and Oxford, they often have these small dinners between the tutor and the students, and they have a lot of discussions. Um, and during the dinner, it came out that John Lennox was a Christian, and this Nobel Prize laureate came after him big time in front of the other handful of students at the dinner and did everything he could do to put him on the spot and to embarrass him and to get him to recant his faith right then and there. And Lennox wouldn't do it. But he said, that was my first exposure to the intimidation uh, of those who shared what I would call another religion. You still with me? He's making an argument here. Um, he says, think of the Nobel Prize in physics, for example. It was won in 2013 by Peter Higgs, a Scotsman who was an atheist, for his groundbreaking work on subatomic particles. Some years before that, it was, it was won by William Phillips, an American who was a Christian. If science and God do not mix, there would be no Christian Nobel Prize winners. But in fact, since 1901, between 1901 and 2000, over 60% of Nobel laureates were Christians. I wanted to suggest that what divides Professor Higgs and Phillips is not their physics or their standing in scientists. They're both, they've both won the Nobel Prize. What divides them, what divides them is their worldview, theism or atheism. It follows that the claim of those academics who tried to intimidate me in Cambridge so many years ago that if you wish to be scientifically respectable, you have to be an atheist, that's obviously false. There cannot be an essential conflict between being a scientist and having faith in God, not with that many scientists as Nobel laureates. Sixty percent 
in that century. On the next page, he tells a story that his first PhD was in mathematics, and he was writing some research papers, and during the Cold War, he was invited to go to Russia, which was highly unusual, and to address a group of Russian intellectuals and academics. And he went, and apparently it was the first lecture of this kind to be held there in 75 years. The auditorium was full to capacity with many professors as well as students. In my presentation, among other things, I spoke about the history of modern science and related how its great pioneers, Galileo, Kepler, Pascal, Boyle, Newton, Faraday, uh, Clerk Maxwell, were all firm and convinced believers in God. When I said this, I detected anger in the audience and not liking people being angry in my lectures, I paused to ask why they were so annoyed. The professor on the front row said, we are angry because this is the first time we have heard that these famous scientists on whose shoulders we stand were believers in God. Why were we not told this? Is it not obvious, I replied, that this historical fact did not fit with the scientific atheism that you were taught? They were indoctrinated. This is where we are today. This is where we are with our children. This is where we are with our grandchildren. We live in a culture that says science has the answer to everything. That's not true. Science is not a savior. Jesus is the savior. Science is not the creator. Jesus is the creator. He has always existed. Always. As one of the old creeds say of Christ, existing uncreated before the world began. When I was a kid, it mystified me. I asked my, I asked my dad, who created God? And he said, no one created God. He's always been. And I'm thinking about that. He's always been. And I, I'm going as far back in my mind as I can possibly go. But where did he come from? Well, he didn't, he, he's always been. How can that be? He's God. He is the self-existent God, the scriptures tell us. Now, kids and grandkids are going to ask this question. And you got to engage with them. And it is, um, you don't have to win battles, you just have to engage and you just have to talk. But may I say this to you, it really helps. The more you know the truth in Scripture, the more it will help you engage. And may I say something else? The more you know the truth of God, the more peace it will put in your heart. As things in our nation and in our culture and our world continue to erode and fall apart, Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And we're watching, them be, watching the foundations being systematically destroyed on a daily basis. Well, what can I do? <clears throat> 
you will have no peace other than an understanding of who God is in his character. He whose mind is stayed on thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. Another section in Isaiah says, he will be the stability of your soul. What do we need? We need stability. We need steadiness. We need firm ground. That's God. He's got you, as we'll see in a minute. Jed Packer, in his book, Knowing God, points out something that he diagnoses where most Christians are when it comes to God. Years ago, and he refers to a book by J.B. Phillips, J.B. Phillips wrote a book called Your God is Too Small, and I think it's safe to say that's true for all of us. And then Packer goes on and says this, Today, vast stress is laid on the thought that God is personal. But this truth is so stated as to leave the impression that God is a person of the same sort as we are, weak, inadequate, ineffective, and a little pathetic. But this is not the God of the Bible. Our personal life is a finite thing. It is limited in every direction, in space, in time, in knowledge, and power. But God is not so limited. He is eternal. He is infinite. And he is almighty. He has us in his hands, but we never have him in ours. Like us, he is personal, but unlike us, he is great. In all its constant stress on the reality of God's personal concern for his people, and on the gentleness, tenderness, sympathy, patience, and yearning compassion that he shows towards them, the Bible never lets us lose sight of his greatness and his unlimited dominion over all his creatures. He is sovereign. He is in absolute control over all things. And next week, we will see that as we delve further into Isaiah 40. You say, further into Isaiah 40? You haven't even gotten to Isaiah 40. <laughs> and I'm well aware of that. But I'm getting real warm. One reason I love uh, <clears throat> Packer's book is that it's so clear. It, uh, it'll stretch you, but it's clear, it's understandable. Packer asks a question. He has a chapter called The Majesty of God or The Greatness of God. And he asks the question, how is it that we as Christian people can form a right idea of God's greatness? Now, that's a very important question because we are hammered and told, first of all, he doesn't exist. If he does exist, he's like us. He's not the God of the Bible. So how do I get a proper idea, a right idea of God's greatness? And he has, he suggests that the Bible gives us two steps that we must uh, take in order to get a grip on the greatness of God. We won't get to all of this. We'll get to the first step, and then next week we'll get to the second step. So let me give you the two steps. For those of you who have been waiting to write something down for an outline, here's your opportunity. The first step is to remove from our thoughts of God 
limits that would make him small. The first step, Packer says, is to remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. Secondly, the second step is to compare him with powers and forces which we regard as great. All right, so one more time. The first one is to remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small, and the second is to compare him with powers and forces which we regard as great. Let's do the first. Let's remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. So how do you remove from your mind limits of God that would make him small? You do that by interacting with the Word of God. You find out what the Scripture has to say about God and who he is. So we want to begin by going to Psalm 139. In Psalm 139, you have the omnipresence and omniscience of God. What that means is, is that he is everywhere and that he knows everything. He knows everything that could be. Psalm 139, there there are 150 psalms. Psalm 139 is one of the, to to me, the psalms, 150 psalms. If you drive uh, into Colorado from... um, from the east going west, suddenly you'll see an outline of the Rockies. Uh, That to me is how I imagine the Psalms. There's 150 Psalms, some longer than others, some more majestic than others, but they're all connected. Psalm 139 is one of the highest majestic peaks of the Psalms. And in Psalm 139, David starts, he starts with the greatness of God. He says, and, and, and as we read this, just just ponder it. Just grab onto it. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. I love that. He understands my thought from afar. Because half the time, I don't understand myself. Do you ever do something and then you wonder later, why did I do that? Or even immediately after you, do you ever say something? And then you say, why did I say that? You don't even know why. It just came out. Or why did I do that? I wish I could get it back. I can't. Why did I, but why? I don't know. I don't get me. I don't understand me. He does. He gets you. He gets you. He gets me. He understands our thought from afar. He understands our motivations. He understands our hurts. He understands our wounds. He understands our fear. He he gets it all. And he loves us. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You scrutinize my path and my lying down. In other words, you know my active life during the day when I'm running around and when I'm sacked out at night. You've got your eye on me. Uh, You're intimately acquainted with all my ways. Intimately acquainted with all my ways. Your quirks. The little strange things you do that you don't want anybody to know about. He knows it all. 
even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. I mean, this, this is incredible. God knows every word you will utter until you take your dying breath. And he knows the nuance and the intonation and the motivation behind each word. He knows it all before you ever speak it. How can he do that? Can science do that? No. God can do it because he's God. He goes on to say about my life, you have enclosed me behind and before. So here we are on this date. What is this? August 25th, 2019. So how much longer do you have to live? Just looking out over this crowd, some of you, it's not looking good. (laughs) Just wanted to encourage you. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Some of you have been on the verge of death and the Lord's raised you up. Talked to someone in the first service, and they, they caught a heart problem. At, they just caught it. Probably would have been dead within a matter of a couple of weeks. Through God's providence, they caught it, repaired it. As for the days of our lives, Psalm 90, as for the days of our lives, they contain 70 or due to strength 80 years, but soon it is gone and we fly away. We don't know how long we live. Hebrew says it's appointed for a man once to die and then comes judgment. God knows how many days you have left. He knows how many breaths you have left. He has enclosed you behind and before. You can look back. I think our lives are like biographies. You read a biography, every biography breaks up in the chapters. You look back over your life, you can see chapters in your life, and you can mark them and you can date them. They're that clear. We look to the future and we get nervous and we get a little anxious because we don't know, you know, maybe you've got a decision, you're in a transition, oh, how is this going to work out? And we get anxious and we can't sleep at night. Psalm 94, when, the, when my anxious thoughts multiply within me, thy consolations delight my soul. What are the consolations of God? The truth of God and who he is. I don't have to fear the future because he's enclosed me behind and before he has chapters written for me that are as clearly delineated as the ones I've already come through. I just can't see them yet. But the same grace that got me through will get me there. How will he do it? I don't know. He's God. There's no possible way. I know. But he'll make a way. It's what he does. He's Jesus. No limitations. He's most high. There are people over us who are high. There are people in positions of authority. There are people people making laws and decisions that affect us in this nation, affect me, my wife, my family, my kids, my grandkids, and I get concerned because they are so far away from God and they're, they're fools. Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I'm just taking with Psalm 14. Instead of the wisdom of God, it's the wisdom of men. And and they are reckless. And they are foolish. And they are self-centered. And I think, oh, this is going to affect me and my destiny of of my future and my kids and my grandkids and all of this. They're, They're high. I grant you they're high. He's most high. He is the most high God. He rules. He reigns. 
In God's universe, there is not one maverick molecule, R.C. Sproul said. He is absolutely sovereign. That means he's in total control. We'll see next week, even of great leaders. The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whatever way he wishes. Do I always understand what God's doing? No. Isaiah 55, 8, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Have you ever asked yourself about God? What? I don't get this, God. I don't, I don't get what you're doing. Of course not. I mean, he told us up front we wouldn't get it. We think we can understand. Can I say this to you? He told us he's not going to do it the way we think he ought to do it. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8. But the more I get in alignment with God and his goodness and who he is and his power and his majesty and his omnipresence and his moral purity and his holiness, he's a God that I can trust when he doesn't make sense. I remember my dad doing things that made no sense to me. And I'd go down into that basement bathroom and I'd cuss my dad. I was 39 years old. No. I was about 12. And I get so mad at my dad because he was so strict. And then when I was, when I was 39 years old, the same things my dad had done to me, I was doing to my own kids. And it made total sense to me. And they were in some bathroom somewhere cussing me. <laughs> but see, you learn to trust. You learn to trust. He goes on and says, You've laid your hand upon me. You'll get me through the future. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit? You know you can never escape God. Even in hell, God is in hell. What? Read the verse. Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, and let's take the wings of the dawn. Think about this just for a minute. The wings of the dawn, the first rays of the dawning in the morning. If you could saddle up one of those rays of light, how fast does light travel? 186,000 miles per second. If you could put a saddle and a bridle on that thing and ride it for 12 hours, how far would you be? I don't know. I'm not able to do that math. It'd be a long way. I'll tell you this. When you got off, he'd be there. What if you wrote it for a week? What if you wrote it for a year? What if you wrote it for a hundred trillion years? You get off, he's there. Because he's everywhere. You can't escape him. Sometimes we feel alone. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You see, because he's God. 
Steve, I'm in the worst place I've ever been in my life. This has been the worst week I've ever had. I'm, I'm not even sure I can continue on. Psalm 34, he is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Because he's able to do it. No one else is able. There's no one else like him. But he can do it. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Watch this. Darkness and light are alike to you. Some of you perhaps find yourself right now in, you're in a dark place. You're, you're in the dark. You're not sure what your next step should be. Maybe it's a transition, maybe a divorce, maybe a, a loss of a job or loss of health. I don't know what it is, but you're in the dark. You never saw this one coming, and you're stunned, and you're blindsided, and, and you don't know what to do. You can't see your next step. May I say this? We find ourselves in the dark. He's never been in the dark about us. His eye is on us. So see, this is what it, we've got to remove thoughts of God that put limitations on him. He's not unaware. He's aware. He's not disconnected. He's connected to me. And he says in Psalm 32, I will instruct you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. But don't be as the horse or mule whose trappings include bit and bridle to keep them in place. In other words, when I show you, don't be like a stubborn horse who fights me. Obey me. Go with me. And I will walk you through this a step at a time. Well, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. This could be a couple of years. Is he going to give you the answer today for the next two years? No. As thy days, so shall thy strength be. Psalm 34. Even though I walk through the valley of deepest darkness, I will fear no evil for, what? You are with me. He's got you behind him before. Blood pressure all over this room is going down because of the greatness of God. And we didn't even get to Isaiah 40. But God willing, next week we will. In the meantime, he whose mind is stayed upon thee, thou will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in thee. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.